Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. Coming up on this week's episode, VMware informs employees of pending layoffs ahead of Broadcom's acquisition of the company. A new Google Authenticator feature has been leveraged in a cyber attack. Cisco is set to acquire Splunk. And Microsoft suffers what is being called its biggest leak in company history. To hear about these stories and more, keep listening to this episode of the podcast, which of course is brought to you by my sponsors. And that includes Netrix Policy Pack, where you use Group Policy, Policy Pack Cloud, or MDM to remove local admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And also brought to you by ControlUp, end-to-end digital experience management for the work-from-anywhere era. ControlUp, happy users, happy IT. And of course, also brought to you by Numescent, the inventors of the first and only cloud-native container management platform for Windows desktops. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. Cisco have announced they intend to acquire Splunk for $157 per share in cash, representing approximately $28 billion, according to a press release by PRNNewsWire.com. And that's $28 billion in equity value. Upon close of the acquisition, Splunk President and CEO Gary Steele will join Cisco's executive leadership team, reporting to Chair and CEO Chuck Robbins. The press release contained a lot of the usual fluff, but also contained a line stating that the combination of these two established leaders in AI, security, and observability will help make organizations more secure and resilient. They go on to state that, quote, we're excited to bring Cisco and Splunk together. Our combined capabilities will drive the next generation of AI-enabled security and observability. From threat detection and response to threat prediction and prevention, we will help make organizations of all sizes more secure and resilient, end quote. It stated the acquisition has been unanimously approved by the boards of directors of both Cisco and Splunk, and it's expected to close by the end of the third quarter of 2024, subject to regulatory approval and other customary closing conditions, including approval by Splunk shareholders. And for their part, I saw Splunk had a blog post on their own site, which was much shorter than the press release. It said a lot of the things that you might expect this kind of blog post or press release to contain but something that caught my eye that was missing is usually this kind of statement would reassure existing customers that at least in the immediate future nothing is going to change for them Um, but that was actually missing from both press releases as far as I could see and on the Splunk website they had some forward-looking statements that contained a whole lot of legalese That includes a disclaimer about business uncertainty, including changes to existing business relationships during the pendency of the merger could affect Splunk's financial performance. So I'm by no means an expert on this kind of thing. I never claim to be this high level, big picture thinker. But my immediate reaction to this and the fact that they're outright stating that it's going to be a combination of two established leaders in AI, security and observability, And the fact that Splunk is used by so many different companies and also multiple different vendors in the monitoring space and other spaces too, 
that through this acquisition, Cisco may get access to a lot of data, which could be leveraged for AI products and services. Now, just call me skeptical and maybe a conspiracy theorist on that, but there's an awful lot of valuable data around the world that's being gathered and stored with Splunk. So certainly an interesting one, $28 billion in equity value. This is a huge purchase. Also announced this week was the acquisition of Liquid by Recast Software. Now in one of my group chats, mainly of friends who mostly work in the virtualization space, some didn't know what Recast Software is. And that's fair because most of my exposure to Recast Software has been more on the physical endpoint management side of things. They create some really great tooling and extend traditional physical endpoint management tools like Configuration Manager. But in the press release, they state that with the acquisition, Recast Software can offer customers a complete application delivery platform while strengthening the company's position in endpoint and application management. They say the need for a modern, comprehensive application delivery platform has become more acute in recent years. IT teams are under pressure to secure applications and devices in an increasingly complex work-from-anywhere environment, and cybersecurity threats have ramped up. Software updates are more frequent and complex, and various industries are facing new and more stringent regulations. They said some of the benefits of the acquisition includes an enhanced product portfolio, so Recast can now offer a broader range of solutions that streamline application management and endpoint security, reducing the complexities and challenges faced by IT professionals. There's also increased innovation. The combined expertise of Recast and Liquid will drive innovation in IT management, bringing new cutting-edge solutions to market faster. An improved customer experience, as customers will benefit from access to a more comprehensive suite of tools and resources, enabling optimized IT operations, and also global reach. The expanded company will have an even greater global presence with increased service capabilities to serve a diverse customer base. So hopefully on that last one, that means that the current presence for Liquid, which I believe is in the Netherlands, will continue to operate now as part of Recast software. It will be interesting to see how things shake out. Just the way I read it, it sounds like there's more of an emphasis on the application updates and security aspect, which I believe is leaning more into Liquid's release and patch management product. It would be interesting to see how they position um, something like, I think it's a smart apps or smart shortcuts, the contextual application delivery and workspaces solution, how that would be positioned by a company with such a foothold in the physical endpoint space. You know, in the virtualization space, things like app stores and storefronts are pretty common. And it's becoming more common through company portals and different portals for configuration manager in the past. But just at least in my experience on physical endpoints, users tend to prefer the application shortcuts being delivered rather than launching through the workspace. So it'll be interesting to see how they combine the products and what they use of recast software and emphasize and promote when the products are combined. Congratulations to Liquid and also congratulations to Recast Software. TechZine, The Register, and several other outlets have been reporting that some VMware employees have been informed of impending layoffs with the proposed Broadcom acquisition expected to complete by mid-October. In the meantime, VMware management says it is unable to provide clarity on the positions that will disappear. Broadcom will finish this task and will not inform the current management 
as it stands now in VMware. I've personally seen VMware employees showing up on my LinkedIn timeline who have changed their avatars to include that green open to work frame with posts about upcoming redundancies. There are rumors and speculation on the layoff.com and social media channels suggesting that the total number of employees to be let go could be significant, but obviously that is purely speculation at this point. And as always, when this type of acquisition is looming, I wish all at VMware and also at Broadcom the very best. It sucks to be living under this kind of uncertainty. Acquisitions like this are kind of just part of the business. Hopefully those affected get well compensated and can find new jobs quickly. There were several reports of this month's patches causing problems with 64-bit versions of Office 2013 applications, including Office launching with a, quote, the operating system is not presently configured to run this application, end quote, error. Some have suggested a repair can resolve the issue, and others point out that uninstalling the 64-bit version and instead installing a 32-bit version can solve the issue too. Others have shared a command to roll back to version 15.0.5571.1000 that predates the recent updates, and this version also does not have the problem. At the time of scripting this episode of the podcast, it appeared to be confirmed that this issue exists, but no timeline for an actual permanent fix for the version update at this time. There's been reports that this month's Patch Tuesday patches for Windows 11 may have broken Windows Firewall. After installing KB5029263 when switching between network adapters, the applied firewall profile can be switched from domain to public network. According to comments on a tech community post about the issue, this is a known issue and the update team is working on a fix. Until the release of the fix, the workaround is to use only one network connection at a time. Oh boy. In a surprising turn of events, Gartner published the very first DAS, which is Desktop as a Service, Magic Quadrant, and Microsoft is far and away the leader in the Magic Quadrant. Positioned high and to the right, with VMware and Citrix both grouped close together in the top right quadrant but straddling the middle axis. Amazon Web Services, or AWS, are in the top left quadrant as a challenger rather than a leader. Interestingly, Frame and Dizian are in the niche players quadrant, and the overall quadrant states it's as of August 2023, but I would think they should be assessed together now rather than separately since Dizian and Frame are one, which I assume would make Dizian Frame at the very least a challenger. Gardner's magic quadrants are supposed to be assessed on ability to execute and completeness of vision. Given Microsoft's size and captive audience, which I've mentioned on numerous episodes of the podcast, you could definitely see how they could be deemed stronger for ability to execute. However, their size could also be a disadvantage for them to execute fast improvements to their offering to close feature gaps with the likes of VMware and Citrix, who have built-in native features that Azure Virtual Desktop and Windows 365 currently lacks, yet both Citrix and VMware lag behind in the quadrant. Completeness of vision, personally, 
I found the initial positioning of Windows 365 against AVD to be jarring and confusing, though I saw Tom Hickling do a great session at AVD Tech Fest in Edinburgh last week that seemed to align AVD and Windows 365 better than I had seen it done in the past. Again, now just personally, for ability to execute and probably completeness of vision and the fact that they're proven entities, I would think Citrix and VMware should probably be ahead of Microsoft in this quadrant, or at least closer. But, you know, maybe the acquisition of Citrix and the pending acquisition of Broadcom has affected the perceived ability to execute and the completeness of the vision. I don't know. And to be fair to Gardner, they always point out that just because a vendor is shown as a leader in a quadrant, it does not indicate that their product is necessarily the best and the right one for you. So, I mean, take it for what it's worth. CRN.com has reported that Cisco has issued end of life and end of sale dates for its Hyperflex hyperconverged portfolio, whilst making moves to lean in on a partnership with Nutanix aimed at hybrid multi-cloud computing. Cisco cited evolving customer needs and market dynamics for the move. Cisco and Nutanix in August revealed that the two companies would be collaborating to offer an integrated hyperconverged infrastructure product line using Cisco's SaaS-managed compute and networking infrastructure. That's Cisco Unified Computing System, or UCS, with Cisco Intersight and the Nutanix Cloud Platform together, which includes Nutanix Cloud Infrastructure, Nutanix Cloud Manager, Nutanix Unified Storage, and Nutanix Desktop Services. The solution will be sold by Cisco and its partner community, according to Cisco. And Cisco expects the joint offering to be available this autumn. Having previously worked at Cisco customers, which a lot of enterprises are, at least for networking appliances, I find this move a little surprising. I'm using the term captive audience a little too much in this episode already, uh, but Cisco seemed to be doing a pretty good job of turning existing network-based customers into Hyperflex customers. But I guess with VMware and Nutanix being market leaders, Cisco may say this is an opportunity to trim the fat, if you will, and to align with a genuine VMware competitor rather than trying to play catch up on their own. That whole adage of, if you want to move fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. Microsoft has suffered what is being called its biggest leak in company history. As part of the ongoing acquisition attempt of Activision Blizzard on the gaming side of things, Microsoft has been sharing information and documents with the U.S. Federal Trade Commission. As you may recall, the acquisition is currently on hold due to an appeal against the deal's previous approval by the U.S. regulators. Well, on Tuesday, there was many reports that Microsoft uploaded over 100 documents to a website hosted by the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California, with information partially redacted, but many pretty sensitive details unredacted, including plans to launch a new next-gen console in 2028 as a hybrid game platform that will fully utilize the cloud, and the document stating, quote, we will enable new levels of performance beyond the capabilities of the client hardware alone, end quote. There's also communications showing Microsoft has been trying to get tighter collaboration with Nintendo, and even statements from Phil Spencer being in support of merging or acquiring with Valve or Nintendo if the opportunity arises. 
For his part, Phil Spencer has quickly moved to dismiss at least some of the information that was erroneously shared by suggesting that the information is dated. So not that it's not actual information from Microsoft, because obviously it is, but just that the information in some of the documents is out of date. He said, quote, it is hard to see our team's work shared in this way because so much has changed and there's so much to be excited about right now and in the future. We will share the real plans when we are ready, end quote. And according to Yahoo and Fortune, other leaked information includes communications stating that fewer employees will be able to receive exceptional rewards and more employees will need to be at the middle of the range within Microsoft's internal reward systems for offering like incentives and bonuses for high performers. And another communication that reportedly was directly from CEO Satya Nadella instructed managers to take the high road when asked by subordinates if budget cuts would impact staff pay rises and instead to, quote, focus discussions with direct reports on their impact for the past fiscal year and directly tie it to their rewards, end quote. So the way that I interpret that and the way that I read that is, hey, we know that we're not going to be in a position to give rewards and bonuses in line with previous years for this year, but don't let them think it's because of budget cuts. Let them believe it's because of their performance, which hmm. <laughs> I would not be happy about that if I was a Microsoft employee. As reported by Wired.com, there's over 100 documents that have been leaked, so this may only be the tip of the iceberg. There may be more details revealed by others later who are quick enough to scrape those documents. So stay tuned. Amazon held its fall devices event this week and TechCrunch.com reports that there were several announcements around generative AI plans and offering a slew of Alexa and Echo announcements, Fire TV streaming news, and updates to Amazon's smart home gear like its Blink and Ring cameras and a new Wi-Fi system called Eero. From an enterprise IT perspective, Obviously, the generative AI play in general is interesting, even if it's in consumer products in this case, just because it's a big trend right now. Uh, but also from an enterprise perspective, the Eero Max 7 sounds interesting. It is Amazon's first Wi-Fi 7 mesh system and combines true mesh networking technology to increase speeds and avoid interference. And that's with 10 gigabit ethernet that they claim users can download a 4K movie in 10 seconds or a 50 gig video game in less than a minute. The price of the Eero Max 7 is pretty hefty though. A one pack option is $599.99, a two pack is $1,149.99, or a three pack is $1,699.99. And that's in dollars, if anyone's wondering. CrowdStrike announced it has agreed to acquire Bionic, the pioneer of application security posture management, or ASPM. The combination, they say, will extend CrowdStrike's leading cloud-native application protection platform with ASPM to deliver comprehensive risk, visibility, and protection across the entire cloud estate, from cloud infrastructure to the applications and services running inside of them. As a result, CrowdStrike will be the first cybersecurity company to deliver a complete code-to-runtime cloud security from one unified platform. The purchase will be paid predominantly in cash, with a portion delivered in the form of stock subject to vesting conditions. 
and the proposed acquisition is expected to close during CrowdStrike's fiscal third quarter, subject to customary closing conditions. Now, given the nature of this product and service, I wonder if it leverages Splunk on the back end, given the announcement from Cisco. And I would think that would be of interest to any vendor in the same space. Are they currently using Splunk and what does that mean for them in the future? Trend Micro fixed a remote code execution zero-day vulnerability in the Trend Micro's Apex One endpoint protection solution that was actively exploited in at least one attack. It's listed as CVE-2023-41179 for the vulnerability, and it has received a severity rating of 9.1 out of 10, categorizing it as critical. The flaw exists in a third-party uninstaller module supplied with the security software. A mitigating factor is that to exploit this vulnerability, the attacker must have previously stolen the product's management console credentials and used them to log in. But obviously, don't take that risk. Don't think, oh, well, no one stole our credentials, I'm sure. <laughs> There's a lot of stolen credentials out there, so patch now. Microsoft has announced the Exchange Web Services, or EWS API, for Exchange Online and Office 365 will be retired on October 1st, 2026, which is when they will start blocking EWS requests from non-Microsoft apps to Exchange Online. EWS's retirement applies only to Microsoft 365 and Exchange Online across all environments. There are no changes being made to EWS within Exchange Server, and the adjustments made in Exchange Online will have no impact on Outlook for Windows or Mac, Teams, or other Microsoft products. EWS components will continue to receive security updates along with some non-security updates. However, there will be no changes to the product's design or features. According to BleepyComputer.com, Microsoft have advised developers using the EWS API to switch to the Microsoft Graph API until retirement, as it will also provide them access to Exchange Online data. However, the company also warned developers of some feature gaps between EWS and Microsoft Graph, with the most important ones including no access to archive mailboxes, lack of folder-associated information and user configuration, no Exchange Online management capabilities, and no third-party app access to Exchange Online public folders. Due to the awkward timing of the last couple of episodes of this podcast, I have yet to talk about Apple's recent iOS announcements, which includes the standby feature, which will turn your phone into a smart display, and Apple has introduced some new AI-powered features, including improved autocorrect and typing suggestions. The new AirDrop feature looks cool. It allows you to bump your iPhone with another iPhone to initiate an AirDrop to share contact details. But if that sounds familiar, it is because this feature has been available on Android for years and was even available on iPhones over 10 years ago, too. So it's something they're just bringing back to the iPhone. I can remember actually trying this out on a HTC phone back in the day in my 20s and thinking it was super cool, but then never used it again outside of that one time in the pub with my friends. Uh, there are some videos showing the iPhone being used as a gaming console thanks to its external monitor support which looks cool. Again, probably not something that I would use personally, and also not something all that appealing to the enterprise, at least from a gaming perspective. I mean, it might be cool for uh, presenting slides or something like that from your phone. Uh, there are also some new interactive widgets, like for displaying new podcast episodes, but really nothing too much to scream about on the widget front either. So that was just a very quick summary of some of the announcements. 
If you'd like to see all the announcements for yourself, I'll share a review from Ars Technica with this episode, which is episode 300, and you'll find that at 5bytespodcast.com. Retool, which helps customers secure their software development platforms, criticized Google's Authenticator app recently and the way that it leads users to enable a cloud sync feature for their MFA codes, saying enabling the feature is a suggested interaction and there isn't a clear way to disable syncing to the cloud. Instead, there's just an unlink Google account option. And unfortunately, this cloud sync feature led to a substantial breach for at least one of Retool's clients. An employee at the client was tricked into clicking a link thinking that they had to fix an issue for their company's open enrollment for healthcare, but it was a phishing attempt that grabbed credentials from the employee and got them to enter a temporary one-time password from Google Authenticator. Ars Technica reports that a short time later, the same employee received a call from someone claiming to be in their IT team who proved knowledge of the floor plan to their office, their co-workers, and internal processes, giving the perception that this was someone who works in the IT team. And the attacker then proceeded to dupe the employee into reading out another Google Authenticator code, which allowed the attacker to add their own personal device to the employee's Okta account which then allowed them to produce their own Okta MFA from that point forward for whatever else they needed to access. So they basically got the keys to the castle at that point. So not cool. The awesome Johan Arvidmark shared that VB scripts no longer work in the recent Windows 11 22H280K as the vbscript.dll is missing. Of course, if you listen to this podcast, you'll know that Microsoft announced a move to remove VBScript from future operating systems, choosing to instead make it an optional feature. However, Johan stated that he was working with Configuration Manager, which adds VBScript to the boot image. If this was an intentional move by Microsoft, this has the potential, unfortunately, to break a lot of products, including MDT and a major healthcare product that I worked with in the past that's pretty much heavily reliant on VB. So heads up, you may run into this. Microsoft has released Windows Subsystem for Linux version 2.0.0. And according to onmsft.com, It brings features such as the sparse VHD feature that automatically shrinks the size of the WSL virtual hard disk, which can save storage space on your system, which that is definitely wanted because from what I recall, when using the WSL, the base image can be quite large. Uh, It also brings the DNS tunneling feature, which helps WSL find websites and services on the internet more effectively, especially when you're using things like VPNs or special network setups. There's an auto proxy feature that ensures WSL seamlessly utilizes proxy info from Windows. Uh, There's a mirrored mode networking feature that gives WSL a better way to connect to the internet and other devices on your network, including over IPv6 and multicast support and improved network compatibility for VPNs too. And they say that this one brings improvements like better support for certain types of internet connections, so things should work more smoothly. There's also an automatic memory reclaim feature that ensures WSL uses your computer's memory more efficiently and a Hyper-V firewall feature that applies Windows firewall rules and offers advanced firewall management options for the WSL VM, enhancing security and control. For more, I'll share a link to this article that I'm referencing with this episode. 
Ned Pyle from Microsoft announced that beginning in Windows 11 Insider Preview Build 25951, which is a Canary build, the SMB client will support blocking NTLM for remote outbound connections. He says that with this new option, an admin can intentionally block Windows from offering NTLM via SMB, and an attacker who tricks a user or application into sending NTLM challenge responses to a malicious server will no longer receive any NTLM data and cannot brute force, crack, or pass hashes. And this adds a new level of protection for enterprises without a requirement to entirely disable NTLM usage in the OS. Azure Update Manager is now generally available. Azure Update Manager is a unified service to help manage and govern updates for all of your machines. And you can monitor Windows and Linux update compliance across your deployments in Azure on-premises and on other cloud platforms from a single dashboard. You can use the Update Manager in Azure to oversee update compliance for your entire fleet of machines, instantly deploy critical updates to help secure your machines, and leverage flexible patching options such as automatic VM guest patching in Azure, hop patching, and customer-defined maintenance schedules. If this is something that interests you, be sure to read the requirements and pricing, which is quite lengthy. Uh, there are also some limitations like no support for marketplace images other than a specific list of supported marketplace OS images. Also, lack of support for specialized images and VMs created by Azure Migrate, Azure Backup, and Azure Site Recovery. And in a case of, I guess it's okay for them, at Salesforce's recent Dreamforce conference, the Salesforce CEO, Mark Beinoff, reportedly admitted he is a remote worker himself and has been a remote worker for his whole life, stating, quote, I don't work well in an office. It just doesn't work with my personality, end quote. Salesforce's return to office mandate requires non-remote employees to go into the office three days a week Non-remote and customer-facing employees have to go in four days a week, while engineers only have to work from the office 10 days each quarter. Any employee can work remotely full-time upon approval from their managers, which obviously I'm sure is scrutinized on a case-by-case -case basis. The CEO went on to state that their engineers are extremely productive at home, and they have lots of people who are extremely productive at home, but there are also salespeople who are productive in the office. And for their new employees who are coming in, they know empirically that they do better if they're in the office, meeting people, being onboarded, and being trained. If they are at home and not going through that process, they don't think they're as successful. Now, 75% of what I read in this article, I was like, oh, rolling my eyes, and I, that's so ridiculous. But that last point for onboarding new employees, I think that is kind of true. Although, I think there's a factor in there to consider. If every other employee is remote, I think the onboarding is more straightforward. But if they're in an organization where there's teams who are in the office and then some people who are remote, I think that's when onboarding becomes tricky. So <laughs> my advice to the CEO of Salesforce is, well, maybe try the onboarding again when having everyone else remote too. In breaking news that I added after I completed the rest of the podcast, Microsoft have announced that their 365 Copilot AI Assistant will be available starting on November 1st for Microsoft 365 customers on certain business and enterprise plans. But the add-on isn't free, obviously, <laughs> and it will cost a whopping $30 per month per user for access to the feature. And of course, I've covered at length what's in this AI, like the ability to 
prompted to write something for you, uh, the ability for it to create PowerPoint slides and help you with design choices and so forth. So it is definitely going to be a very interesting feature and set of capabilities, but it's $30 a month. So keep that in mind. Maybe it will be good for people in like sales roles, marketing roles, and possibly executives, but it's probably not going to be one used by every employee in the company. And finally, to wrap up the news for this week, this is episode 300 of the podcast. The podcast started way back in January of 2018. And just want to say thanks to everyone who listens to the podcast and just helps to continue it to grow at a steady pace. I'm both proud and kind of disturbed by the fact that I've gone close to six years without missing a week. And to do that, I've recorded the podcast in many different cities and countries while traveling for work or even on family holidays. I bring a travel microphone with me when off of work. I've recorded podcast episodes while sick, which is evident to those who listen regularly because my voice sounds off on several of the episodes. And I even recorded recently uh, and published episodes after having surgery while struggling with a post-surgery infection. So no one could claim I'm not committed to this, even if it's at a fault to myself. And if I had a friend who was doing the same thing, I would probably have a word with him and <laughs> tell him to take better care of themselves. But all that to say, you know, recording and editing each episode every week takes hours. It essentially adds another work day for me each week. And there's no way that I'd be able or willing to do this without sponsors. So a big thank you to my podcast sponsors over the years, uh, past sponsors like Goliath Solutions and Liquidware. And of course, my current sponsors, Control Up Networks, Policy Pack and Numescent. And I'm not sure why 300 seems so big to me. I didn't really mark the 100th episode or 200th episode in a significant way. But on this occasion, I want to mark it by launching a giveaway. And I'm going to be giving away a Stream Deck Plus, which is a really cool looking Stream Deck. I don't have this particular Stream Deck. I have one of the older models, which I really love. But this one looks even cooler because it's got dials for controlling audio and stuff like that. And I'm not going to open this up widely. I'm not going to be promoting this competition much on social media i'm not going to be allowing people multiple entries by like following the podcast on certain platforms or any of that stuff you simply just put in your name email address and verify that you're over 18 and that's your entry and i'll share a link to enter the competition with this episode which you'll find at fivebytespodcast.com with episode 300 or you'll find it in the description field of the youtube edition if you watch or listen to the podcast on YouTube, or you can go to fivebytespodcast.com and toward the bottom of the episode guide, you'll see a small little bit of text with a link to it. I wanted to make it discreet so people don't find it who don't really listen to the podcast and start entering the competition. I want to do my best to limit the bots. I want. I just want to reward people who actually support and listen to the podcast. I'm going to run the competition until October 31st because there are those who listen to episodes kind of many at a time rather than every week. So I want to give people an opportunity to hear this and to enter. But just once again, thanks to the sponsors. And most of all, thank you to everyone who's been listening. And now this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. 
going to keep it relatively light this week because <laughs> ironically the 300th episode may actually be the longest episode of the podcast so far uh, but first up my buddy Trenton Ty uh, posted a reminder on Twitter that running workloads in Azure and having network traffic go across an S2S VPN to your domain controllers which is site-to-site VPN can very much slow your logons uh, true that FNA here <laughs> Trenton uh, latency to DCs can kill logins and Trenton posted some uh, links to some of his older blog posts that are still evergreen and great material for those to learn how to improve your logins. James Rankin had a really great blog post this week on migrating FS Logics profile containers to Citrix UPM containers, and also some other new features that are listed for UPM version 2308. So James has been a pretty big proponent and advocate for Citrix UPM containers and he's been pretty vocal about uh, not liking some of the changes over the last couple of years to FSLogix profile containers. He's definitely got a depth of knowledge on the subject. Finally, Guy Leach had a tip to use get-dat with dash format O in order to get the local time zone offset. If you're using WMI, it's not as human readable and clear. Well, that's it for this episode of the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening.